0: Hey, hey, remarkable people, this is Tracy Robbins, and you are listening to Thy Neighbor Podcast. This podcast is designed to inspire you to expand your community, to connect more often with those who are in your path, and of course, to love thy neighbor as thyself. You will hear from individuals in my day-to-day life who are crushing it and making the world a more lovely place to inhabit. Have a listen. I met Kendall Christensen when living in the D.C. area. He is a passionate learner. You are about to learn so many things in this interview, and I'm so excited for you to listen. Please check out the show notes. I took extensive notes on this, and you can reference them because I've done the hard work. Also, Kendall has two books, Life Simplified, Extraordinarily Handy Life Hacks for Ordinary People, and Come Closer, 101 Plus Charming Date Ideas, The Creative Outside-the-Box Way to Connect and Romance. You can find those books on Amazon, and I hope that you enjoy this remarkable interview. Hello, Kendall Christensen. Tell my listeners about who you are, where you're from, your family, hobbies, and profession.
1: Well, Tracy, I'm so excited to be on this podcast. I have the highest respect for you and what you're doing here. And a little bit about me is I'm just a passionate person. I think uh, we were in the same region for a while, and you and I just connected instantly because I was just into a lot of things, and you're into a lot of deep things. And that's kind of my story. I, I went to BYU for my undergraduate And I was one of those people that like, I went in there and I was like, I'm gonna get the most knowledge possible out of this experience. I got a major and two minors and I still audited anywhere from nine to uh, 18 credits on top of that every year that I was in college. So I was just learning all the time, going to classes all the time. Um, And after that, I did a study abroad in uh, the Middle East, And then I joined Teach for America right after that. When um, and that's also when I got my master's degree in teaching. And then I stayed in Philadelphia and started my consulting there. And then moved to Virginia and did the same thing. Uh, Got married, moved back to Utah, and started a computer business. Now I'm in the effectiveness coach and computer businesses. Um, During the pandemic, computers was just a much you know, more stable thing than what I was doing, especially with the in-person workshops and stuff like that. And uh, I have a son who is my whole world. I love him to death. I sacrifice so much for him when he comes over. Being a single dad just kind of, you know, takes over my whole life, but I love it. I love every minute of it. I'm so blessed to be an entrepreneur where I can just set things aside if I want to and need to and give him a hundred percent of me and I wouldn't have in any other way. And as far as hobbies, I mean an easier question is what is not my interest in hobbies. I mean, I just I love so many things related to learning and organization, time management, productivity, communication, logic, chess, anything strategy really. I've gotten into strategy video games recently even. Psychology, social interactions, emotional intelligence. I mean, the the list goes on and on. I love I love so many things.
0: This is very true and something that I'm aware of. And in fact, I told you that Marie Forleo coined the term multi-passionate. And from an outsider's perspective, I see you as a very multi-passionate person. Something that I know about you is you're a big reader. And so I want to know what you are currently reading. Right now, I just finished
1: three, count them, three books that all had basically the same title and, and focus and uh, promise, which was uh, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> and I, I purposefully waited until I could read them all at the same time so I could like compare and contrast. The one by, oh gosh, I forget her name already, Maria Kononov, I something like that. Um, but but the the subtitle of that book is Mastermind: How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. That one was by far the best of the three. The other one was was published in England and it was it was more accessible, but also you know not very research uh, based or very in depth. I'm I'm a statistician and a reference nerd, so I look up all the references and read the original research articles so I can know that what the author is actually saying is backed up by the evidence and not just something she wants her readers to think is true because it helps her with whatever she's trying to sell. And also uh, because Down was just with me, Down's my son, I did some research on the best children's books. So I just recently read like the top 50 most engaging, popular learning for uh, kids books. Some of them I didn't like, but I could tell why they were popular. But books like the book with no pictures absolutely deserves that reputation, one hundred percent. That that's just uh what I happen to have read recently is those two things.
0: I collect children's books, so that's really fun. I've never even heard of that book, the book with no pictures. So I'm excited.
1: oh oh, you got it. You got to read it. You got to get it. It's amazing. It is so great for kids. They love it. It's really clever.
0: And have you read the book, The Gift of Nothing? The Gift of Nothing. I don't think I have. Well, I, I recommend it. It's Tracy's favorite. This is a hard question because you read a lot, but what books are on your top five right now?
1: That is that is tough. I thought about this and I went through my Goodreads and I force ranked ordered books there by by rating. One of my life goals is to memorize 140 books. so I looked at that list. I did come up with five, but uh, with the caveat, that this is just kind of where I'm at right now with what I am focused on and learning. I don't know if I could have an all-time, but number one I'm going to give you has actually been number one for five years straight, which is unprecedented in my calculation. Maybe it'll be in the top five forever you can count on, but the other ones we'll see. I would say How to Read a Book by Mortimer J. Adler is, is number one and for your readers just to make them a little disclaimer here it's a tough book i had to read it 3 times before i really was okay now i really am using this and understand it in a way that i'm conversant in it cuz it's tough the, the author Mortimer J Adler is really pedantic he's kind of inaccessible at first but he 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 does speak so that the average person can understand he's just a professor and he doesn't feel like he needs to change how he talks for an audience. He wants the audience to rise to his level. And I I actually really appreciate that after I put in the work to get there. But at first it was it was very hard.
0: And why do you like this book? I love
1: learning. That is my one true passion. That's the thing that connects everything that I'm passionate about. In fact, when when we get to that question or now the, the real answer to that is I'm, I'm passionate about all these things because once I have a need or someone that I love has the need, I become passionate about a topic that will help them until I'm an expert and I can change their life in the thing that they need and it just in nine times out of ten when I start learning something, I just become so enthused about it. I want to learn everything there is to know about it and it just goes on the list of my all-time favorite passions because I love it so I, I just three weeks ago updated my website, with a parenting section, not because I'm some fantastic parent, although that is one of my top priorities. uh, And I do feel like I've invested in, in that to, to get the best outcomes for that. But I see some other parents who like rely on techniques of behavior management and discipline and stuff that are just, wow, they clearly have not read, you know, a single book on the topic. And how can I help a, a group of people where they're so busy, they're, they're, heart's in the right place. They want the best for their kids. They just don't have basically any parenting skills other than what they've seen their parents or others do. They don't have any you know, academic help as far as like, what does the research say is best? And so on my website, I now have a, a list of 10 quick and dirty tips where you don't have to think about it. You just have to read it and be like, okay, when I have this problem, I'll do this instead of this. What are the most common things and the most common research backed ways to do them effectively? And it's, it's helped my one friend quite a bit with that.
0: Can you tell us one of those quick and dirty, <laughs> the quick tips on that? The, the biggest broad stroke thing
1: I could tell you to do, actually I'll do two. Coursera.com is a great company. I'm sure you and many of your listeners have heard of it. Uh, the head of the American Psychological Association um, did a parenting course on there. That was his passion. He dedicated his entire life to raising children effectively and getting good outcomes from them. And his course was so good that Coursera is like, we're going to make this a public service. We're going to make your course free for anyone. And so if you go to Coursera.com, his name is Alan kasdin My website goes into a lot more broader stuff. But once I found his stuff, I was like, this is almost everything that I would will that everyone know. Seriously, just take this course and it'll check almost every box that I've seen as far as common problems. But one of the things he says, and my own research has backed up is when you're with kids, don't make assumptions about their intent. Kids are naturally good. There's some exceptions, but just make that assumption and force yourself, like whatever your kid is doing to frustrate you or to, you know, act out or be bad, like just set their motivations aside. Do not even look at that. And the application of that is always 100% of the time, literally 100% of the time, you must. Be positive toward your child, even in discipline, even in correction, even in whatever that is bad that they have done. You must remain eyebrows up, very positive, and be like, hey, I want to understand why you did this. Or like, I bet you can put on your boots faster than you did last. You know, just like whatever it is, be positive, be encouraging. They must feel safe around you. That is foundational You cannot compromise on that principle. And I see it compromised all the time because we're tired, we're overworked, we're hungry, whatever. But if I could give just one tip, it would be that. Like whatever you are feeling for the sake of your child, please be positive. If you want them to learn, that is the only way their brain is going to be activated to receive what you are giving them is that they feel safe and comfortable and you are being positive and calm.
0: People change when they feel good.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely.
0: Okay, next book.
1: Next book, yes. Five Elements of Effective Thinking. Much, much simpler book. In fact, they wrote it with the specific intent to be as accessible and easy to read as possible. Yet I can attest that it is quite profound, very effective. It will totally change your paradigm about how you approach the world and learning and thinking and analyzing problems and And solutions it is fantastic I cannot recommend it highly enough number three so one of my passions mainly because of my life story being married was very difficult for me and our biggest problem was communication and I was just there's got to be a way to solve this to lick this to be effective in this and so for several years that was my number one goal was to like understand how to communicate effectively in disagreements and decisions that there's only one thing that you have to choose. And if two people want different things, I mean, how do you solve it? That's a big problem, very common problem. And the best book on that topic that I've ever encountered, I've read hundreds of communication books. This is by far the best. Write it down. Difficult Conversations by Patton, Heen, and Stone. All Harvard researchers. They have 35 years of sources they cite. It is so robust in their methods but still very accessible you read it and if you don't care to look up the footnotes you'll still get almost everything you can out of it very very accessible read but just so profound it will absolutely change your whole world on hey i'm having a disagreement what is going on right now you will know you will know what is going on with you and your spouse you and your business coworker, you and your friend whatever the topic or situation is It will give you profound insight onto what is happening. How can I make the outcome be positive, be effective, be good for all parties?
0: I want to read that
1: book. Yes, prioritize that book. Oh, it is so good. It is so good. And then I I had like six others I wanted to give you, but I, I forced myself to choose these two just because in my life currently, this is where I'm at. And I love these books because... I was abused in my marriage in several ways, mostly mental. And one of the things that in my recovery has been just vital to me, just vital, is knowing that what I think is okay. I have my opinions, I have my perspective, and that's that's okay if yours are different. We don't have to be the same. I don't have to agree with you, I don't have to, you know, make you feel comfortable. By changing what I actually believe to suit your worldview. That's a, a failing of maturity on your part if you have to only be around people that agree with you. That's on you. That's not my problem. And so this fourth book is all kind of about that and about achieving things in your life, making your life worthwhile and different and lasting and leaving an impact. And it's called Be Unreasonable. This book is very, very good. It's not on the same like timeless list level. Again, it's very much just associated to where I'm at and what I need in my life right now. But it starts off with a quote by George Bernard Shaw, which says that reasonable people conform themselves to the world. Unreasonable people demand that the world conforms to their ideals. All progress in the world, therefore, depends upon unreasonable people. Wow, And you can take that many different ways. A lot of people take it negatively, but I take it as like, wow, yeah, the world has problems. The world has systemic problems. And if you look at history, uh, you, you, you mentioned in the, in the prep for this interview that you found my heroes of history section of my website. If you look at those people, they were different. They were not like other people and they demanded that systems and averageness change because they saw a better way. And they were the instruments to make long-lasting changes because they would not accept what other people had accepted for hundreds or thousands or however long. And, and that's kind of prideful as it may sound how I view myself. A lot of average notions, a lot of you know things that make people comfortable with mediocrity and whatever they've, you know, settled for in their life is not actually true. And there's multiple ways you can confront that reality. One is to deny what the the true reality is, and you know belittle it and make fun of it and say, "Hey, you make me feel this way, so you're therefore bad." That's a very common way. Well, I think a much more healthy way, which this book recommends, is just acknowledge the reality. I, I almost put on there, and now I'm going to mention it anyway. The book *Mindset* by Carol Dweck. You can go in the world and have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset, and a fixed mindset is threatened by things that would make them you know have to change or have to acknowledge that what they're doing isn't the best but a growth mindset that's that's how they live their life they already know that they are wholly inadequate wholly ignorant wholly ineffective in many 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 ways that's normal that's okay there is absolutely nothing wrong with that but they approach that as an opportunity to be like hey i am now aware of this new thing that either He's going to force me to grow, makes me feel uncomfortable. Why does it make me feel uncomfortable? And I'm going to start from where I'm at now, the actual reality of my true situation, and, and learn and grow and improve so I can be better in this thing. But you know, all these people from history and this book be unreasonable, people will react negatively to people like that that say, like, no, this isn't right, this is right, and this is what I believe. You you will get strong strong reactions from that. So people will call you unreasonable. So that's why the book is called Be Unreasonable. Number five is really short. You can read it in like thirty minutes, and it's something that I believe we're members of the same church. Our prophet at one time, uh, Thomas S. Monson, said he read this short story every year. And when I heard that, I was like, Gosh, I gotta I gotta know what this is all about. And I read it, and I was like, Oh my gosh, yes, I'm gonna read this every year too. <laughs> And it's uh, called The Mansion by Henry Van Dyke. Very, very short, simple story, but such a profound moral lesson and good reminder to each of us about where our priorities should be and what character actually means in this day and age.
0: Oh, beautiful so many great recommendations there and you only gave us five of the 25 you wanted to give that's amazing and tell us one of your greatest accomplishments and one of your favorite quotes
1: this was hard i'm gonna go with an older accomplishment uh growing up i had severe social anxiety i'm still very much very much an introvert This was far, far different from that. I I hated going anywhere in public. I hated anywhere where I had to interact or even see strangers. I was so terrified of talking to people on the phone that I literally, before I was 18 years old, had never had a a phone conversation where I didn't have at least something written down like a script to follow of what I was going to say because I was just so anxious and afraid and self-conscious around other people, just to an extreme, extreme extent. And in uh, our church, uh, one of the things that's expected of young men is to go serve a mission, typically in a foreign country, preaching what we believe and and trying to convert people, or at least make them aware of our system of of belief. I remember my whole life, I was just dreading this time of uh, my life. I was trying to find any excuse not to go, but another part of my personality is a, a high sense of moral rightness. What is the right thing to do, regardless of how I feel, what is the right thing to do? And you must do that. And that won out. And so I did go on a mission, but I was completely miserable the first long while, <laughs> mainly because of the hot under the collar, anxiety, being around people that I didn't even speak their same language. I mean, I, w- I was learning pretty quickly, but it was still just, I will never forget how hard it was to be around people and to meet people and be social and conversant and outgoing and extroverted it was the last thing i wanted to do but uh, a leader of the church visited my area and gave a challenge and again you know that sense of duty is like oh my gosh you just asked me to do something impossible but you you said we all had to do it so now i have to do this thing and that thing was to talk to 10 people outside of your normal appointments every single day 10 strangers every day and i talked to the 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 leader of my mission i'm like okay this is this is it i i have to go home now cuz i can't do this i'm miserable i'm failing every day i feel like i'm so ineffective please send me home i'm so uncomfortable i'm so unhappy just please have mercy on me kind of like what this book be unreasonable says is he could have chosen to react to my very sincere please multiple ways but he chose to say no elder is, is the title of, of missionaries no elder you can do this and I promise you you can do this and I promise if you do these uh, few steps you will do this and he actually gave me another promise he opened up to a scripture in in the Book of Mormon ether 1227 and he read it to me and he said this promise is to you specifically if you work on this weakness, Uh, God will make this weakness into a strength for you. Another part of my story is like, I I like to go to musicals and plays and I would always just be so jealous of actors and people who are charismatic. And a large part of me did. I, I wanted that. I wanted to be able to be comfortable around people and to talk and to entertain them and to be perceived as someone worth knowing and worth seeking out. And here he was promising me, that I could I could develop that. I could be that if I was willing to sacrifice. And what he was asking me to do was impossible, impossible for me to do. Like I just would never have been the type of person to do that had he not said, you have to do this. And I promise that God will will magnify and strengthen you. And so I did. And it, it took a long time. It took about as long as he said he's like, you have to do these things for you know three months. And then once you do that, He he gave uh, something by uh, Brian Tracy, I believe is where it comes from, where in every task you start off unconsciously incompetent. You don't know that you're incompetent. And he's like, you're you're not on that level. You're on level two, which is consciously incompetent. You are aware that you are incompetent of this thing. He's like, that's good. That is progress. If you work as hard as I'm telling you for three months, I promise you, you will be consciously competent when you focus when that is your goal and when you've prepared, you will be able to do this thing to accomplish in the short term what you need to do. And most people stop after that point. Once they you know, can check off the, the necessary box, they're like, OK, I can do this thing when I want to. Great. That, then they accept that level of performance and they usually stop progressing. But he said if you continue to work as hard as you did those first three months for another. He, he didn't specify a time this time, but it was within the two year period of the mission then you can become unconsciously competent. Without thinking about it, you will naturally be able to be social and outgoing and extrovert. I think that's the accomplishment I'm most proud of. It's definitely affected my life by far the most as far as like what I've been able to do and accomplish in my goals and just general fear and belief in myself uh, is to overcome that by sheer grit.
0: <laughs> and I'm amazed because you really have. What is one of your favorite quotes
1: This one goes better with our theme and and my personal personality of learning and improvement. This is by W. Edwards Deming. And it's pretty simple, but it's something that, again, like reality doesn't care about your feelings. Like truth is truth. He says, it is not enough to do your best. You must know what to do and then do your best.
0: I think a lot of people are lost in the even knowing what to do so that they can do their best.
1: Right. And so I would say in that situation, which is very common, including myself, you know, just do the best you can. But all, all of the recent problems that I've told you I've researched and tried to help these people with all of them without exception, they have had the problem in my biased judgmental opinion. You can disagree with my opinion, but it is my honest opinion that all of them, All of them, without exception, have those systemic problems because in the times that they were gifted with free time or an opportunity to grow or, you know, even just a a weekend where they don't have their kids or or something, you know, whatever the situation may be, I strongly believe that we are all given opportunities uh, to, to step out of what Stephen R. Covey calls the whirlwind and look at how we are doing things. And most people never or rarely take those opportunities. They're just like, oh, finally, I get a break. And then they go and take a break. And it feels good. And we all need that. But I would like to attest that a better way is to say, OK, yeah, relax some. But in those precious, precious moments, you have a moral responsibility to assess your life, what's working, what's not working, your goals, you know, your goals in five years, 10 years, however many years in the future. And make sure your time and methods are aligned to those goals. And especially in the case of the person I'm trying to help with parenting, it's been several years where she's had, you know, these same problems, the same problems. And I I personally have helped her, you know, just kind of with her kids and stuff. And she has tried lots of things. I, I don't know of any mom or dad that just, you know, doesn't want the best for their kids and their hearts in the right place but that unfortunately is often independent from the actual way that they are going about that. And in my personal biased judgmental opinion, they have not taken the time to be like, okay, I have a weekend. How can I improve my relationship with this child? How can I get the behaviors out of this child? And, you know, they, they can increase their skills, increase their awareness, increase their ability to know what to do. And then the problem becomes, okay, I know what to do now. It's just, doing it consistently, and especially with kids and parenting, I mean, my time in Teach for America can attest, consistency is so powerful. And if one time you make an exception or they perceive weakness, then the game is thrown off for a, a long time. I would summarize why I like that quote so much, because you, you have a, an obligation to increase your learning so that you know what to do more often. No one is expecting us to know what to do all the time. That's, that's rare. But in the things that are common and consistent problems in your life, I think we have to take those gifted moments to, to change the game and to increase our skills and learning and knowledge in those things. And it makes a huge difference. I mean, that's that's habit number seven of Stephen R. Covey, you know, sharpen the saw. And he's like, that's the least common thing that people do. People don't do that. They just don't. They're like, no, I'm going to take my dull saw and I'm going to do what I've been doing for years and hope for different results. That's That's the normal. And I think that's wrong. And I think this quote says, like, look, we all have to do this better. Like, it's not enough to just do your best. But that's the worldly notion. Just do your best. And what they mean by that is, like, don't take thought for tomorrow. Don't be proactive. Just when something happens, do it with all the skills that you've
0: happened to have at the moment. And and that's, that's wrong. <laughs> Tell us how you even got to that point where you became wise enough to record things.
1: Yeah, so a little bit about me, one of the things that like on dates, um, sometimes I'm asked like, what's something you feel like people misunderstand about you or not a lot of people know about you that you'd like them to know? And uh, one of the big things for me is like, yeah, I, I I know a ton. I've written a ton. I've written books. I've compiled things. I worked as a research assistant for four years and helped publish several other books. That way, they were basically, you know, all my work, just the professor at the university plays name on it type. Situation, like I, I, I know and have done a lot, and a lot of it is to my organization system. But my my natural ability, I, I have a below average memory. Uh, I, I thought I was learning retarded when I was growing up, and for several reasons. But uh, I've been able to overcome most of those things, or at least you know, as people perceive me, I'm I'm far above average in those things, even though they don't know that I'm actually using techniques so that I can overcome my natural weaknesses and and, perform on a different level. But it is precisely because I have have taken my weaknesses and been like, okay, this is a common problem. How do I solve it? And with learning and memory and um, retaining things, that's been how it's happened. My system is pretty simple. It's just like you alluded to, not many people do it. which is number one, I take extensive notes. When I'm reading a book, I always have either my dictation thing that I can do it. Um, if you have an Android device, they now have uh, character rec- recognition built in where I can take a picture of anything and it will with almost 100% accuracy transcribe the words in my camera feed and I can copy and paste it anywhere. I'm always, always recording what I'm learning. Typically I record it in Evernote. And then uh, how to read a book has a system where you're like, okay, you have the information that you feel is important. Now here's how to categorize it. Here's how to organize it. Here's how to sift what's important and what's not. And then I use a uh, flashcard program called Anki, A-N-K-I, totally free, unless, again, you have an Apple device, then you have to pay for it. It's, it's free on every other platform. I don't know what's the issue with Apple. And then I use a graph where this is how your the typical memory works on average. And once you're exposed to something, you typically have a lead time of a few days to a couple weeks where like, you can recall that and talk about it. But if you don't actively force your mind to recall that information, it actually subconsciously tells your brain, hey, that's not important. You can forget it. And so I believe the, the, the curve of forgetting the optimal way is like review it three days after you learn it, two weeks after you learn it, Two months after you learn it, and then every six months or so after that. And if you do that, and it just takes a few seconds, you just have to recall the information to your brain. Then studies show that over the long term, you tend to internalize that information. And that's something that you know I, I'm not the best at. I'm, I'm excellent at, at the, the upfront um, investment in the system, but I have so many organized things that I haven't actually you know memorized most of it, the great majority of it, because I do. I know that it is organized and I know that I can access it. But if I want to take my consulting business to the next level, which I will be doing, and I, again, I have a goal to memorize 140 books, and I've done that to a few already. I, I have so much more to do, but it's in those last steps of, do I actually use this method to to make it a part of me? Uh, Elder Bednar, that's how he defines intelligence. You have not increased in intelligence until that knowledge has become a part of your being that's what intelligence is all my life including after my biggest initial transition to be more extroverted but even after that i've always had a problem with remembering names terrible absolutely one of the worst in the world i'm convinced of it and and a, a part of it is like I, i've learned a lot about how memory works and and most of it is i'm meeting them for the first time my focus is on Oh, I gotta make sure my hand is in the right place. I'm just thinking about so many things because I'm naturally kind of socially anxious. That when they say their name, my attention is not given to that part of the whole interaction. So that, that's the first thing that I've had to be like, okay, my focus is going to be, I am going to be attentive when they give the name. That's that's literally half the battle with memory in, in most cases. Uh, in my case, I have a little bit uh, shorter short-term memory or RAM. I forget the original name, but like the analogy is to RAM, working memory. And the way to overcome that problem is it, it's gone over extensively in the book, Moonwalking with Einstein. And that is you have to make the memory vivid. Let's say I met you for the first time and you say, hi, my name's Tracy. And if I did the first part, which again, I fail I fail often to not even get the name up front for whatever reason, uh, but I'm, I'm socially confident enough so that I can say, oh, I, I'm sorry, I missed your name. What was it again? And so nine times out of 10, if I miss the, the first time, I'll still I'll still get it the second time. Um, and, and then you have a choice then. So you've been given the name and names have a very, very short time in your brain because they don't have a lot of things that are associated with strong memory making unless you have a long term relationship with them. Uh, then that's the exception, but for most people, there's almost we have almost zero associations naturally with names. They're just arbitrary letters strung together. We have no strong connections to them. So that's that's the trick number two. You have to force yourself to connect with the word Tracy. So I'd be like, okay, Tracy. I got to remember Trace. And the more vivid and striking and crazy you can make the memory, the better. So I would probably just this, this is my first gut reaction, I would imagine you taking your own hand with a Sharpie and tracing all over your face. I mean, if if you did that in real life, would I soon forget you? You know, if we were at a conference or whatever, and like right after I met you, you traced your face. No, I wouldn't forget that. I would remember that. That's very striking. And so the next time I meet you, I'd be like, okay, what was her name? And then I would remember that, that image that I forced myself to create at our meeting. I'd be like, tra- tra- Marker, oh, Tracy, Tracy, you were tracing your face. Obviously, I wouldn't say that out loud. I'd say that in my head. But, but the goal of remembering your name was achieved.
0: Thank you so much for giving us an actual example. I thought of the same thing. I was like, yeah, Trace, like I would do the same thing. That's what came to my mind as well. But I've never thought of it until right now. So that's awesome. I
1: meet a lot of Johns. In fact, at my church, I was recently called to the Elder's Quorum Presidency. And I'm trying to remember all the elders' names. And John is a common name. And I literally imagine a John like a toilet. And like, you know, something being flushed down a toilet that is theirs or you know, part of them is a toy. Like just, it's crazy, but it works. It works.
0: <laughs> and the more bizarre, the better we remember it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: There have been some peaks and valleys in your life. And specifically you mentioned that you have gone through a divorce. And since you're somebody who's going to learn through a process like that, what are some of the things that you learned along the way?
1: Who, <sighs> well, One of the things I learned is uh, a lot about communication. I have a whole course on my website, learnempowerment.com. Actually, no, I haven't put it up yet, but it's a whole course on how to understand what's happening in communication, how to communicate better. And um, there's so much I could say about communication that I've learned. But just one of the first things I learned, it's, it's pretty deceptively simple, but it helps a lot with your personal relationships which is when two people are having a problem or like something happened and you're trying to say hey you know I didn't appreciate this and I want this to change or whatever it's a very common thing the one of the underlying things that most people don't know about that is a problem is called intent versus impact in psychology it's so common <laughs> that they actually have a different name for it which is the fundamental attribution error and that's basically there, there's so many ways you can teach it. I'll, I'll go the psychology route. But uh, when other people do bad things, it's because of their character. They meant to do it. And it was deliberate. And the way it affected me, they knew that it would affect me that way. That's the assumption that we make. And it's totally, totally wrong. That's why it's called the fundamental error. Uh, but, but when we do ourselves do something that affects others negatively, what do we attribute that too we attribute it to circumstance oh well you know i was busy that day or i had a hard day at work or i didn't see you do that thing and so when i ignored you you know you can't blame me because this other circumstance was to blame it wasn't me so when other people do wrong it's their intent and they meant to do it and it's because of their character but when we do it our character is perfect and it's explainable totally by external circumstance not our fault uh, external fault, um, and so in the in the more research t- taking away from the psychology fundamental attribution error and more in the communication literature now of intent versus impact, how that works practically is we judge ourselves based off intent, we we judge other people based off off their impact. We don't think the best of their intent. We only see, hey, your action affected me badly, and so you must have had bad intent. That's the assumption. That we make. And the correction to that is, is you have to realize, okay, intent, what the person behind the action, you know, before they did the action, that's invisible. We can't see another person's mind why they did what they did. That's invisible. We don't know it. So do not assume that you do know it, good or bad, good or bad. That is false. You have to investigate first. Like, hey, when you did this, what did you mean by that? Can you clarify it? So one of the top skills that I teach people in communication is clarify, clarify, clarify all the time. That should be what you do before you react naturally. Make that a habit. And if you look at late night hosts or people that are interviewed for high profile stuff, they do this all the time. They ask for clarification. They ask you to repeat the question or say like, do you mean this? You know, They just take that half second to be like, are we on the same page first before we launch into this? Huge debate, huge argument. Let's make sure we're both seeing the same thing. (laughs) And like, again, it sounds so stupid, so obvious, so simple, but I'm here to tell you, it happens all the time. It is one of the most common problems and it's one of the most problems that causes the most relationship angst that there is. Intent versus impact. Stop judging other people based off of impact only. Try to investigate their intent. And when they're having a problem with you, stop giving yourself a pass saying, well, I'm the best person in the world. Clearly, I didn't mean how you're feeling. You got to stop that and say, "Okay, regardless of what I meant to do, how could they have interpreted it logically and reasonably this way? And I want to feel that and I want to understand that first before I say anything. And, you know, obviously, I, I didn't save my marriage. It takes two people to go through that process together. Um, But even if only one person does it, it it helps a lot.
0: That means that there's hope. This is very motivating for me. So I appreciate this. Yeah.
1: And just just to apply it to my thing personally is like, you know, I'm kind of a nice guy. You know, Taylor Hartman's color code personality. I have a lot of blue in me, which, you know, I want to do the right thing. I tend to sacrifice um, for other people because I feel like that's the altruistic, you know, Christ-like good thing to do. And that can be taken advantage of very easily in relationships by people who take, 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 or use that tendency to be like, oh, what did I do wrong? To be like, yeah, you're bad. And here's why you're bad. And that makes them feel better. And so, another thing I want to give your listeners that I learned through that ordeal is a new definition of assertiveness. I don't know what um, conception your listeners have to that word, but I had a pretty negative connotation to that. I thought, you know, you had to like, get in people's faces and tell them what you think and why they're wrong. Like that's what I thought of assertiveness. And so I would never do that. You know, that's bad. That's not Christ-like. That's aggressive. That's mean. And so I can't remember which book this is from, but I wrote it down. The definition of assertive that I use now is the following acting on the belief that we are on the same level are equal to others and deserve the same amount of respect and communication as the next person.
0: Can you say that again?
1: Yeah. Assertiveness is acting on the belief that we are on the same level, are equal to others, and deserve the same amount of respect and communication as the next person. One of the things that early on in my marriage I didn't really become aware of is like just the balance of how much one person talked over the other, how much one person's opinion was weighted versus mine. And I finally realized like, "Hey, you know, I I have a right to be heard. Like my opinion is just as important as yours and and we've listened to you and we've, you know, worked with you for a while. Now, now it's my turn. I I have equal deserving of of respect and worthiness to say what I think. I'm on, you're, you're not, you know, like nice people kind of live their life as if other people are better, more important to them. Cause we got to be selfless and sacrificing. And that's true in some rare cases, but overall, like, no, like you are equal to everyone else. You are just as worthy, just as lovable, just as talented, just as, you know, deserving to have your opinions be heard as they are. You, you should be equal. It, it's not an imbalance. You're, you're equal. And you need to think of yourself as like, hey, it's my turn now. I have a turn.
0: On many levels, I think that can be applied in many people's lives in many different relationships and scenarios where they may not be sharing their thoughts or when they do feel like they're sharing their thoughts, is it a safe place for them to do so?
1: Right. So even with like, you know, bosses or or people that have actual authority over, you know, it's not. Really, that abrasive. Although you know, narcissism is rampant in society and in marriages. So I, I can't guarantee success. But you, even phrases like, "Okay, thanks, thanks for for that. It's my turn now," you know, you you can say that to a superior. Like that that is a, a natural human tendency. Basic fairness. That that's a human value that is shared across cultures. So if your boss is only doing it one way, you know, you you can put in your little toe and be like, "Okay." When is it my turn to speak? That is something that assertiveness allows for in a very respectful, non-confrontational relationship building way, unless the person, you know, is uh, totally unreasonable and doesn't have anyone but their own interests at heart, which unfortunately is, is the case sometime. In fact, I was going to go over the definition of tact with you, which I guess I'll just do now. Tact is the ability to teach, critique, criticize, or correct uh, someone else without them being offended. But see, that, that is not as good as assertiveness because the last part of that definition, it actually depends entirely on the other person. And one of the other transformations I had when I was trying to save my marriage was I went to these communication workshops and I met the authors of some of my favorite communication books. And on on multiple occasions, uh, different different authors said the same thing, which is like, look, these these tactics and 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 skills they work. They will increase your likelihood of success dramatically, but but there are there are no guarantees. In fact, you can do everything we're teaching you perfectly, absolutely perfectly. Be you know approachable, humble. Uh, assertive appropriately do do every check all the boxes and the other person can still choose to react negatively that is their choice you can't take that away and so that that's the one you know the biggest the biggest problem in, in when i teach communication is like these things work they will change your life but so often people expect a guarantee and instant results or the other person to automatically you know be who they are not and and again, even with those people who are just totally narcissistic, totally unreasonable, these things will increase your likelihood of success. But but there are there are no guarantees.
0: And when reviewing your website, I came across your heroes. Can you tell me one or two of your heroes and why they are your heroes?
1: Yeah, so I have a lot of heroes. Um, the the one that like stood out to me, at least as far as when I went to college and I developed a lot of my ideals, which my ideals were severely under attack when I was in Teach for America and especially my marriage. A lot a lot of my marriage, uh, my ideals sadly didn't survive. I'm, I'm still a, a positive idealistic person, but there are some things now where I'm like, that, that might not be possible. That just might not be a thing. And like, I think that's a natural progression, but I'm also sad about that change in me. But yeah, I I still nevertheless have these heroes and I know it is possible to do many, many great, amazing things. And, um, I have, I have lots of heroes that are well-known, you know, like Steve jobs was one he's mentioned a lot in the book, be unreasonable because he was, he was absolutely one of those people that's like, okay, everyone is telling me this thing. This is impossible. This design just can't work. We have to do this and this incrementally. This is too n- much newness too quickly, blah, 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 You're all wrong. This needs to exist. The world needs this, and I'm going to give it to them. And who's with me type of thing. And he changed the world. You can't argue he didn't change the world. He did. He changed the world because of that philosophy. Um, but uh, so, so he's one of my heroes. Albert Schweitzer is one that's lesser known, I think. Um, so one of the reasons I like him so much is he very introverted, uh, studied a lot as a kid. And, you know, when he went to university, he loved philosophy, which I love deep questions and thinking for the sake of thinking. He was just my type of guy. And after getting his degree in philosophy, you know, he had to study six years to get a PhD to get a professorship at the university. Um, He started teaching, loved it. But uh, very, very much like me, he was like, okay, yeah, I'm doing this teaching thing and I'm successful and I do what I love is is that the purpose of my life is is just this or like should we be doing something more like how how do I really change the world how do I really affect other people's lives in a better way and so he actually went back to school again for six years to become a doctor and once he became a doctor, he, he started um, working with people and you know saving their lives. And then that naturally led into him going to Africa and building hospitals and making his life entirely just about you know what and, and this is one of my philosophies too. like even on things that I'm not good at or that I'm selfish in and I know that I don't like doing them, I'll still ask this, question which is I think a a principle from Albert Schweitzer which is what what is the least I can do that would make the biggest difference you know I can at least do something what is that something that with the least effort I can do the most with and in his case you know he actually ended up moving to Africa and building hospitals full-time but at first that's how that change started was he was like look I'm doing this and helping the people here but like in Africa, the need is so much greater. And with just a little bit of resources, I can affect so many more lives. My favorite quote from him is, My life is my argument. How divisive is, is politics today? And you know, people argue online about who's right and who's wrong, and blah, blah, blah. And he he just he got a type of wisdom that was just so much better. He was like, you know what? Don't don't look at what I say, look at what I do. And then Listen to what I say, if if that is enough to convince you.
0: I the last two questions. One of them is, what do you think the world needs now more than ever?
1: Yeah, I've, I've I thought a lot about this, and um, you know, as as a learner, as a teacher, you know, my master's degree is in pedagogy and teaching. Uh, I'm gonna go with teachability. Teachability. I, I mean. So again, to use politics as an example, how many people are just so sure of their opinion that they're just right? And and how many problems does that create in a society where we have to learn from one another, we have to work together, we have differing opinions, and we have to solve the problems that exist in our politics and in our daily lives with radically different opinions, and the only way that that is going to happen is if we have kind of like what we've been talking about with communication a little bit of hey this, this is just my perspective let's not go into this until you feel like i understand your perspective to your satisfaction if if the world did that acted on that philosophy oh my goodness what a change it would create but no what what do we have instead i'm right you're wrong If you don't agree with me, I automatically, there's research on this. It's automatically explainable in my head because either you're uninformed, you're stupid, or you're evil. That's what people assume. If If you disagree with me politically, that is number one reason, number two reason, or number three reason, why? And they don't challenge those assumptions. They're just too natural, they're just too comfortable because the alternative is, hey, wait a second. I might not have all the facts. Your analysis might be better than mine, And you actually might have a better policy or intent uh, that I don't know about. But people, again, naturally don't want to look at those hard questions about themselves. So they much more easily explain the disagreement by these terrible, terrible ways that are so prideful and non-teachable. But I I think just a little bit of humility and teachability would would change the world. Like one of my favorite essays is by a BYU-Idaho professor. I forget his first name. His last name is Butler. You can find his essay on my website, as well as BYU-Idaho. Uh, the essay is entitled, Everyone is Ignorant, Only on Different Subjects. And if, if we went into, you know, politics or, or any, any conversation, really, with that mindset of like, look, the stuff that I don't know can fill entire libraries. I'm, I'm going to go into this trying to learn from other people. And, you know, I, I also have this problem, like, I, I research and read a lot. It, it's actually quite rare that I go into a situation where they know a lot of things that I haven't already done. If it's a, on a common topic, which most of politics, I would argue, is a lot of the common topics resurged again and again. And that's one of my uh, Myers-Briggs personality flaws is, like, look, when it's clear that you don't know what you're talking about and you, and you do, like, I, I will just, like, turn off to you. And that happens a lot. In politics, and I, that's something I personally need to grapple with. I need to suspend my disbelief for a while, and still, even if it is an actual fact that they are uninformed, I need to still be respectful. But nevertheless, in most cases, just because I'm prideful and judgmental, and know a lot of facts and have done a lot of research, in, in the average in the average uh, political discourse, that that's not that way. Most people are just you know on a, on a different level where they can learn a lot from one another. And and I myself can learn a lot from other people, just not maybe in the ways that they think, because I you know never take a position on anything until I've researched it thoroughly. Otherwise, I'll say you know I don't know. You you tell me, and I'll just learn from you for the next however long until you know I've exhausted whatever supply of knowledge you have. And I love those conversations. But most of the political topics that I engaged in, I actually do care about and know a lot about, it. and and so it's different. But uh, nevertheless, I'm always open to other perspectives something I haven't heard before like I love to learn and will absolutely change my opinion in light of better facts or a better argument I I have no allegiance to a side or to an argument or to a political party or to a philosophy I only I'm on the allegiance of truth if truth you can convince me that something is true I will change to that new and better way absolutely I've done that with people I totally disagree with they they convince me wow your argument is better than what i believe if i have to change and i've had many of my opinions change that way but i i don't see other people doing that in the face of better facts better arguments they will still just be closed minded not teachable and not change and i don't know how much more our society can go on like that i mean i i'm seeing a definite shift in what politicians and their constituents are willing to sacrifice in the name of not having to say we were wrong we need to apologize we need to change this policy or approach we were wrong like they they will do almost anything else to avoid having to even imply that something they did was less than perfect i mean that's that's a recipe for disaster i mean you're talking about not prophecies but predictions from people like Cicero and what's the other one, not, not John Locke, but a contemporary of John Locke that said, look, there is a pattern to how societies decay. And in my opinion, we, we are starting to really follow those patterns. And it starts with that pride of like, no, my tribe, my political party is right. And by definition, anyone who disagrees with me is wrong. That is one of the key elements to societal decay and we are seeing it.
0: Yeah. So how have the neighbors in your life taught you to either change or improve the world?
1: Like I said, I came out of a pretty brutal marriage and divorce. And um, one of the things I struggled with was kind of, you know, what we were talking about with this be unreasonable look of like, gosh, you know, maybe she's right. Maybe I am this way. Maybe I'm just like so bad and terrible. And I've just, you know, done all these things wrong. And it's just all my fault, everything, you know, like that, that's the temptation that I would think. and. Sadly, I didn't, you know, when I was having the marriage problems, reach out to, you know, people as amazing as you. A, a few of my friends reached out, but like at first, I really didn't want to talk to them. I just felt guilt because in, you know, my religion, divorce is such, you know, a thing of, of last resort. And I just didn't know how. And, and and to their credit, all of them were totally supportive, non-judgmental, and loving. And I should have reached out to them earlier. But nevertheless, I struggled with how valid were my thoughts. And some of my friends um, just really, when they called me and they say, hey, we know who you are. We know who, what you stand for. These these other things that you're being assaulted with, they are false. Like, that is not you. This is you. And we know you very well. And and I just can't tell you how the neighbors in my life just like brought me out of a, a hole and And like one, one conversation in particular, I was talking about like, oh, well, you know, I just hesitate to think it's this because so many people say this about them and, you know, I'm married to them. So I, I think I know things that they don't see, but I'm just not sure. And, and one of them was like, no, actually like I, I'm studying to be, you know, a therapist and I know this person and everything of what you're saying about them is true and what she is saying toward you is is false and as a you know professional who knows this thing objectively like i am seeing all the same things that you're seeing and i i can't tell you what a switch that was because again my natural inclination is to be altruistic self-sacrificing think the best of other people and and that was causing a lot of problems because that wasn't the truth the truth was what this person was what they were doing was was kind of sick it was, it was, it was maladaptive and abusive to, to say the least. And once I saw that for what it really was, regardless of, you know, the, the, the implications of what that meant for the other person, again, that how they choose to take that is up to them. But I started to see things more clearly and someone who is a trusted friend that they can be honest with you, on, honest in both senses. Like what I'm telling you now is a, a validation story. But the people who will be honest and and say, "Hey, what you're thinking or doing right now is is incorrect," and here's what I think, and you should change, are just if not more valuable. And and those I, I have an essay on my kendallc.com website about what is a true friend, and that's what I define as a true friend: someone who will want the best for you and want you to be your best. They love you more than your temporary comfort or happiness. That to me is a true friend. And it's increasingly rare. Like we, we feel many people, not every people that uh, we have to just be um, there's a psychologist coined a term. um, I think it's Roberts is his name. And he's like, no, we have to have unconditional positive regard, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, it's all great. You're great in every way. And that's the way to make friends and have strong relationships. I, I cannot subscribe to that. That is that is being a yes man, a flatterer. There's scriptures in my religion about that, against that. But I'm, I'm here to tell you that is very strongly in our culture. Like even, even in religious circles, we feel like that is the higher way of like, oh, we can't judge. We can't make others feel uncomfortable. That's not our stewardship type of things. And the sacrifice to that is a lack of truth. And I think it's dangerous. And that's why I define true friendship, true neighborliness as, hey, I'm a seeker of truth and doing what is right. And here's what I say. You can take it for what it's worth. It's just my perspective, but it is my moral obligation to at least make you aware of this thing.
0: And how can we reach you? If people want your services, Kendall, if they want to follow you, if they want to go see your resources, where do they go?
1: My Twitter handle is at Kendall C, K-E-N-D-E-L, letter C, Twitter. Uh, People can find me on Twitter. Uh, I have two websites, kendallc.com and learnedempowerment.com. So my email, and that's learnedempowerment at gmail.com.
0: Amazing. Kendall, thank you for giving me your time and your wonderful wisdom.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure beyond measure. And you and your husband are just go-getters. And again, it, it really is an, an honor to know someone who is like, hey, I am interested in doing these podcasts. I feel that's a good thing. I'm going to go and do these things. That is just, you're, you're a walking miracle. You put good into the world that is just the angels and I rejoice over you and your choices. Thank you for for being selfless and sacrificing and putting your time into something that, yeah, it takes a lot of time, but it's, it's, it's changing hearts and minds. I think that's one of the greatest things that a moral person should be actively doing. And I I wonder how many people even ask themselves those questions. But not only have you asked that, you're involved and you have a pattern of doing it. And I think it's amazing.
0: Thank you so much, Kendall.